Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler, joined as always by my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. It's been a while since we talked again, so we get to reconvene and discuss all of the preseason games so far in just one massive lump. Like a good lump? Are we talking lump of coal, or, or what kind of lump are we talking about here? I, mean, I guess I guess reviewers will let us know when we're done talking. <laughs> yeah, Uh well, the Pacers are what? They're two and one now? It feels like they played more than three preseason games, but it's only been three. Um, yeah. Beat the beat the Hornets, which we talked about a little bit. Not really uh that's that was a game. Lost the first game to the Knicks pretty handily, and then beat the Knicks last night. Um so I I guess we were talking before this. We want to start talking about the Canadian rookies because they were phenomenal last night and there was quite a bit to take away from them. Um I mean, I think we have to start with with Benedict Matherin, right? For sure. Yeah, I think that's that's where the listeners are going to want us to go. Um, just been, I guess I want to ask from you right off the top, has anything that he's done in these three games kind of been a revelation for you based on what we saw of him in Summer League or what you and I saw of him when we did our Stock Up, Stock Down series from uh, the pre-draft process? So I, I'm, I've been trying to think about this. I... I think that there are kind of a, a conglomeration of of both. Like I, I don't I would objectively say that I don't think that he's doing anything that is like blowing me away. Um not to say that he's not that he hasn't been impressive, but more like I don't think he's doing anything that was unexpected for me. I think I tweeted about this this morning. The uh the at rim finishing and finishing through contact has been really impressive. Um, especially considering that this team, as I'm sure we will get into uh there are not a lot of plus contact finishers on this team right now uh but he's looked really good with that i saw some people tweeting out that they think his handle looks better i don't really agree with that i think it's been more so like i've really been impressed with how rick and the coaching staff has uh implemented ben into the benedict into the offense to get him going in straight lines without having to you know have pickup points um and I just think he's been really aggressive too. Like I really was impressed with like, it sounds minute to talk about a six, five wing crash in the glass, but like, especially in that last game, he was really active trying to find cutting angles and, and ways to, to impact the offense without necessarily having the ball. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of my general takeaway right now. Yeah. I mean, he's drawing over six fouls per game yes. as a rookie in these three games. I mean, he had, he drew 11 fouls in that game last night against the Knicks. And it's like when you break it down and you look at how he drew the fouls, it's it's similar to what you're saying. I mean, what I wrote in my column when one of my winning, my whole one winning section was the plan for Benedict Matherin's usage and how he's being incorporated into the offense. Because when you look at it, like I don't like player comps, but on the various mm-hmm. podcasts that I went on, I said a lot of times, like I think he can be a more athletic buddy healed. Yeah. And a lot of the actions they're running are the 
same plays that they run for Buddy Heald. They just look a lot more different. They just look a lot more different with Benedict Matherin's kinetic energy applied to them. So, you know, we're seeing him coming off a widescreen. That's what they run for Be- for Buddy. If if that gets taken away, he flips around and goes into Spain and will pop out, and then he can attack after that, out of that pop or out of a spot-up situation, or it's just out of drive and kick, and he's just attacking his guy against that tilted defense. So, like, a metaphor I would use that I was thinking about this morning when I was re-watching this game as he reminds me, I don't know if a lot of people remember these games, but like the wooden box uh, labyrinth game with a steel marble that you have to tilt to get it down the track. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, that's what I think of when I'm watching Benedict Matherin in these three games, because the coaching staff is doing a good job so that he's always pretty much attacking a tilted defense. And especially against a team like New York, where they're going to flood over to the strong side and a lot of times only have one guy over there to zone up the week. As soon as he catches that, he's getting not only his head of steam because what he is as an athlete, but there's not as many people over on that side of Florida to contest him. And then, like I said, it's all just kinetic energy to the rim and he is he's looking to hit first if he has that rim protector there he's delivering the bump first and clearing that space so seeing him do something physical I know you and I had kind of talked last year on the one podcast episode we were like can we think of five things that this team does Mm -hmm. that are physical and like two of them had to do with Lance I think and he's not even on the team (laughs) now so like Benedict kind of takes over in that uh, bully drive arena but anyways when you like look at the fouls it's that he drew in, in last night against the Knicks. It's an off-ball foul, another off-ball foul, attacking a closeout, attacking a closeout, transition, taking a charge, transition, off a putback, and then out of a DHO where he kind of adjusted his stride length and slowed mm-hmm. down on the last step to get into Isaiah Hartenstein. And Isaiah Hartenstein was having uh, quite a few problems there in the fourth quarter containing Benedict Matherin. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's really impressive how many fouls he's been able to draw on these three games. I think that's kind of my main major takeaway. Um, he hasn't shot add... the ball. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Uh, I don't mean this to like dig the knife in. This is like, he is literally the perfect player to play with Devonis Sabonis. Like that's, that's what is so, it's so cathartic and watching that, or I guess ironic is the right way to put it. Um my adjective and analogy use has been pretty terrible lately, but um, I mean, I just imagine him because right now, like, I mean, I think it's something else we'll get into, but like the DHO operation on this team outside Terry Taylor has been, if you had one word to describe it, what would it be? Gummy and wobbly. Yep. That's a great way to put it. I mean, that's what I wrote when I wrote about, that was one of the losing things I brought up. Like no offense, Miles Turner's done some other nice things, but like that has shown zero improvement since last year in preseason when they were kind of letting him do more of it when it was, it seemed like a pretty clear intention last year at the beginning of the season that because Miles had kind of made some comments about wanting to be more involved in the offense that they were trying to kind of evenly split some of that. And that's when Mm -hmm. Sabonis was spending more time in the corner. And it's anytime he has to make a decision, like where it isn't straightforward, where he can cleanly make that. If he has to change sides or he has to decide what to do, it's been very gummy. And then I just, I do not understand how it's year eight and he still isn't dribbling toward the receiver's defender. Like why he dribbles right at the receiver and then doesn't just put his arm out into their chest with the ball. I I don't understand. Like, I guess this would go back to last year's debates between Jokic and Embiid where Jokic was like getting dinged allegedly because he had handoff assists and those don't count. Like, I understand there isn't always 
Like you're not always earning that when you hand the ball off to somebody necessarily, but I think that you can see a pretty definite uh, difference between certain players as DHO operators over others. And that's definitely an area where Miles has struggled and Isaiah Jackson's had some issues there too. And really so is Jalen, but we'll get into the whole front court later on, but yeah, I mean, I think in front of the home crowd last night, especially in that fourth quarter to see them playing, you know, basically three rookies together and have them claw back from, I forget how many points they were down. I think they were down by 10 at one point in the fourth quarter, not necessarily with that exact mm-hmm. lineup out there, but, um, you know, Matherin's making some really big plays. He gets the windmill dunk on the breakaway, which the game was kind of, you know, decided at that point, but that was still but a hey, really cool highlight. How many times can we say that we've seen a windmill dunk for the Pacers in the last 10 years? So, yeah, I mean, I, I can think of one with Paul George pretty readily, but yeah, um, out on the break in that Clipper game. But Andrew Nemhard, like, I don't, I don't know if you, well, I guess let's do say one other thing. I do want to point out that Benedict Mathern on the defensive end still has a ways to go. Yeah. As much as I appreciate all the different ways that he's being used on offense and that he's getting a step to get downhill and what he, what he's doing with that. Uh, defensively, he's had some issues, but that will be a segment that we get to. But Andrew Nemhard, what have you been your thoughts? We got to see a lot more of Andrew Andrew Nemhard last night. Played the entire fourth quarter. Obviously, T- our Tyrese Halliburton out with back soreness. TJ McConnell's the starter, so we got to see Andrew Nemhard playing more consistent minutes. Uh, not a shot at TJ, but low-key to me, Andrew looked more comfortable in the offense than TJ did. Um, and I think part of that is, I mean, a lot, again, a lot of it's, I think that's less on TJ. Like to me overall, like that, another one of my takeaways was like the offense overall felt very uh, like, yeah, there was space out there, but um, there was a lot of like running into each other. And granted, that's it's preseason. A lot of young guys on the team. Um, it, it Did you kind of get that same sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll expand on that when we get Mm -hmm. to the offense segment. I do agree with that to a point. Um, I think the one thing, you know, when TJ is running stuff, they're running a lot of Spain pick and rolls and the Knicks are going to duck under that every single time. So it does take a little bit more assembly required when he's your main primary ball handler as a starter. But um, I have actually been fairly impressed. I mean, TJ's not to use a cliche, but been really fiery defensively. I mean, I think he made a pretty big difference from the tip of that game with how much he was pressuring Jalen Brunson Mm -hmm. full court versus how they looked against Jalen Brunson in the prior game in New York and how easily he was getting to some of his spots. So I I haven't felt badly about what, what Oh yeah, no, I haven't felt badly about him. I just, I think it was more of a, more of an anecdote on the team than on him. Um, I mean, the thing that stood out most to me about Andrew Nemhart, especially in that fourth quarter, is that he made two threes off the catch. Yeah. I mean, I felt that the one time was really impressive where he ran pick and pop with Goga. The Knicks switched it. He recognized that they switched it. Goga passed it to him. And with, you know, Hartenstein then sagging off, he right away pulled the trigger and made that catch and shoot three, made another one from the corner. And that was kind of an area where I wasn't so, I mean, he didn't shoot the ball well in summer league. And I hadn't watched a lot of Gonzaga last year. Like we Mm -hmm. didn't do a preview stock up, stock down on Andrew Nemhard because I wasn't really expecting them to take a point guard. But like his release point on his shot is very low. So I wasn't exactly sure how that was going to translate in catch and shoot situations because he generally shoots a little bit better on pull-ups, but I about lost my mind when he let go of the shot from the logo <laughs> in the yeah. catch and shoot situation. Like he literally had a foot on a logo and, and let that three go with space. But um, I've noticed one very quirky thing about his game that I don't really want to touch on here because I think I'm going to want to write about it. But okay. um, 
people can look out for that. I, I think that I will get to it maybe before the start of the regular season. We'll see. Um, I don't know if he'll be part of the regular rotation, but another thing, like not just from last night's, you know, standout between the two of them in the fourth quarter, but also in the prior game is, I don't know if it had to do with Aaron, Aaron Neesmith and injuring the plantar fasciitis or what exactly led to this particular rotation change, but he was out there in minutes with Tyrese and I believe Chris Duarte at the end of the second half or mm-hmm. at the end of the second quarter against the Knicks. And they were putting him on Jalen Brunson at that point in time. Um, Cause Tyrese was having, we'll just say he was having some issues staying in front of the ball um, in, in New York. So I, I didn't know how much we'd actually see like Nemhard and TJ McConnell playing together or Tyrese mm-hmm. and Andrew Nemhard playing together. And we actually did get a little bit of a peek at that. Yeah. Um, I just continue to really enjoy uh, Andrew. This is not really like a real analysis point, but I just enjoy Andrew's guile and in, in pacing in the game. Like uh, he's just a fun pick and roll playmaker. He's good at, I mean, I loves to snake things. Um, and I think you like, not that I'm calling him a better passer than TJ McConnell, but I think you see some of the benefits of having somebody with more height um, who can see over the defense a little bit better at uh, as the backup. So I enjoyed him. Um, Shoot, what else are they going to hit on? Uh, do you want to talk about Jalen Smith for a second, or do you want to transition to something else? Well, I think we're going to get into Jalen. Okay, true, yeah. Um, let's just go right there. I mean, I, I, if I guess where you're going, um, our next segment, we just want to kind of talk about overall what we're seeing at the offensive end of the floor over yeah. these three games, schematically or just from individual players or anything else you want to note there. Uh, yeah, I think – the what is I don't want to say frustrating, but what's difficult in uh, I, I think the Miles and Jalen obviously granted they have not played very long together yet, but I think you see some of the uh, difficulties in them playing together spacing wise um, because neither of them's really getting guarded as a three point shooter. Jalen did not shoot well at granted three games, twenty five percent from deep on about three per game. Um, but I think that's where when I was talking a little bit about there being some some gumminess. And again, like part of that's on the D, on just like the overall screening, how the, the DHOs and handoffs look in general. But um I, I just felt Jalen's impact wasn't really there for me for the most part because the shot wasn't falling and it didn't it so he was just kind of spacing. It didn't really feel like there was a lot uh that I really felt his presence. Like I feel like I checked my uh notes multiple times and like i don't think i've written anything about Jalen yet um at least offensively um did you kind of have some of the same thought there i think that more my issue with Jalen so far especially in this two game series against the knicks is he kind of struggled at both ends of the floor to an extent like he's been okay on the offensive glass but his attack of closeouts he obviously had the one last night where Evan Fournier about took him out and they had to go review that play, but he's not very shifty and he also doesn't have, you know, a long, quick first step. So it's very hard for him attacking these closeouts. And that was really the only time that he's been particularly successful with it. I think he had one moment in the Charlotte game where he was the popper and he put the ball on the floor, but like, other than that, like the one dribble pull up out of a closeout has looked pretty awkward like mm-hmm. it just hasn't been a lot of fluidity there. And I know that they had said that was something like in addition to him guarding more out on the perimeter, 
that they were wanting to see from him. And yeah, if he's not hitting the three, like there still has been some closeouts for him at attack, but it just mainly his impact, like I said, has either been on the offensive glass or him kind of floating around for cuts where, you know, Miles has found him a couple times. But I think what's even more interesting is that they're really not playing the two of them together that much. Yeah. Like Miles is kind of taking the old Sabonis rotation and that he comes out you know, fairly early and then returns at the end of the first. But when he comes back in, he's playing with Terry Taylor. And then at the end of the half, he might play a little bit more with Jalen. And then Isaiah Jackson is coming in and playing with Jalen and it Terry Taylor comes in for Jalen. So like we've seen no Isaiah Jackson and Miles Turner together offensively, defensively or anything. To my knowledge, they have not even played one minute out on the court together, which I mean, some of their language, I think, led both of us to believe now, not a year ago, but now that they were seeing Isaiah Jackson as a five. And it kind of makes me want to know, like, what is the thought process here? Like, is it that they really believe in Isaiah Jackson this much to develop defensively as a five? Or is it, you know, more so a case of we're going to manage the rotation this way because not that we're the trade or, you know, the transaction podcast here, but like, if Miles does get moved, then they are ensuring that Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith are playing a fairly decent sum of minutes together with the way that they're balancing that out. Because otherwise, I still just don't understand why we don't want to see Miles and Isaiah Jackson playing at least some together, which, again, I don't want to turn this straight defense yet. But the only other explanation that I can come up with that is that if you play Isaiah Jackson and Miles together, Isaiah's probably going to get guarded by the five because you're probably going to exclusively roll him. And then the whole situation where Miles isn't really, you know, being a quote unquote stretch five or playing against a five isn't really happening again. So they're starting him with Jalen. And so far to this point, I do agree with you. There's some pretty key moments where if Jalen's above the break, nobody's guarding him. And that's even showing up in some of like the uphill DHOs that Terry Taylor's running with Buddy Heald, where like two defenders commit to Buddy Heald, but then Terry's still having to score over the center right at the rim because they're not staying attached to Jalen as the shooter. So that is showing up. But to this point, he is being guarded by fours, at least when he's out there with Miles. Well, now we'll see how teams adjust to that as the season goes on, depending upon how Jalen shoots the ball. But another thing, you know, front court wise, we haven't seen Miles Turner play since January. In addition to the dribble handoffs, what are you noticing from him now that he's at long last playing at solo five as he wanted to? Um, I I don't like. I don't want to be harsh and say that I'm not noticing anything differently. Like, yeah, he's. I mean, he's gotten the line a decent amount, but I think part of that's preseason, like the transition defense and just defense in general is like, it's, it's not the same. It happens every year. Pace goes up, everything like that. Um, I was a little bit frustrated as wrong way to put it, but yesterday I do think there were multiple times where he kind of did the go thing where he put the ball that on the deck instead of just going straight up with it. And um, I think he got stripped once on that. Um, and like, I, I don't know, like overall, I just don't really think that it's been some crazy difference. So you're saying that him just automatically playing at the five wasn't going to radically change things for him? It would appear not, though. Well, I mean, I think some of it you have to take into account the fact that he hasn't played basketball in however many months. No, no, no. And like last year, he, he wasn't, you know, making shots necessarily in preseason either. And then two games into the year, he did have the 40 point game. 
So I take all that into account, but there has been a few things like I give him credit because he has made that like fake over the one shoulder and then turn back to his right move mm-hmm. twice now, which is nice. And I don't know that I've necessarily see him, seen him do that a lot in the past. He has made a couple passes off the move where I was like, oh, okay. Like some of it's been a little bit out of control, but he did recognize where the ball needed to go. Um, but other than that, like the end of the half against Charlotte was not very good. I mean, he was kind of like non-existent from an offensive standpoint in the game in New York. Obviously it wasn't playing the second half in either of those two games, but like just the Tyrese miles pick and roll is kind of desired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not really doing anything for either person. And it goes back to what I've said in the past that I think, you know, when I think of pick and roll partnerships, generally, if it's a guy who's games built more on range and a floater and is going to come off the screen and survey. I think that guy is going to pair more with somebody who's going to be moving towards the basket as a lob threat or a roll threat. If you're somebody who's going to turn the corner and be putting two feet in the paint, then you might pair better with a popper. But like I had flashbacks watching them orchestrate the pick and roll and the Charlotte game to the Darren Collison miles days all over again, where it's like, yeah, like you're technically rolling off the screen, but he's stopping the roll in the paint. And then Tyrese is having to slow his dribble to make like the pocket pass or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, you made that shot, but if you don't make the next one, what's that really doing? And and, yeah. and sometimes it's okay. Like if they're playing back off of him and they don't want to tag up, then, you know, it's good if your center can make that type of shot or have touch to make that in the lane, like great. But I don't think that should be your go-to as much as a counter especially with how Tyrese plays. And then there was another time where he kind of Tyrese manipulated it for him and he missed kind of an easy shot around the rim. So um, I think he has been fairly active around the offensive glass. I give him credit for that, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've been a little bit underwhelmed to be honest to this point from both Jalen and miles. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No disagreements for me on that. Uh, I mean, is that a do you want to flow into defense or do you want to keep talking offense? Because I do think there's a natural bridge right there. No, I mean, I think that there's a few other things to talk okay. about just offensively, because like if we look at where their usage is coming from, like most, which this was the case last year too, mostly spot up and pick and roll, but their transition frequency, which was something that I knew I was going to monitor mm-hmm. coming into this, has increased. They are 16th. Still probably not exactly where you'd want that to be with this roster, but that is an improvement over the back end of last season. And, you know, Tyrese wasn't there in the third game to really be motoring the ball up the floor with the starters as much, though though TJ McConnell does that too. But, you know, transition frequency league-wide on an average basis is does generally go up in preseason, but the fact that the Pacers have moved up in rank, I think is somewhat notable. And I think a lot of that has to do with like what we are saying with Benedict Matherin, like he's such a force or has been a force in transition with just barreling in and drawing contact mm-hmm. that he's been a piece of that. But no, the other thing that stood out is they're only getting 5% of their usage from the role man and 1% on post-ups, which they haven't really faced a switch heavy defense to this point in time, but that those are both lower marks than last year. So like sometimes when I'm watching miles, like it goes back to the thing again, where it looks like he just can't find the balance between getting the pick to stick and getting out of the pick to make himself available on the roll. Like he's, he's going up touching base and then getting back, but he's not really creating a passing lane with the way that he's rolling to the basket or making him it, it easier for Tyrese to find him. So um, that kind of stood out and then shot distribution wise, they are not taking a lot of threes. 
nor are they making a lot of threes. So fun game. Do you know who the only player currently on the roster through these three games who's shooting above 35% from three on at least two attempts per game is? Because there's only one. Ooh. That's a good question. I feel like I should know this. Um, I know it's not Tyrese. On how many per game? Over two. Over two? Buddy hasn't shot super well, so I know it's not him. Is it? Is it Andrew Nemhard? Yeah, That's yeah, he's wild. shooting forty-two percent mainly because of you know he shot the ball better last night. Yeah, but yeah, I mean nobody else is shooting above thirty-five percent, so they've had some troubles just getting shots to fall. But no, the other part that's been very surprising to me about the offense is that. Overall, I would say what they're doing on both ends of the floor is is heavily read-based. Like, yeah. not that they're not running any set actions, but, and this is where, and you were mentioning some of the clunk, like, there's some clunkiness that's going to come along with that mm-hmm. um, when you're playing flow game, especially with younger players and they're learning where they need to relocate and what, you know, the next read is beyond where they are. But I also think that's a good thing because in the long run, you know, sets can be scouted, but reads, you know, can't necessarily be when it's just coming more organically but yeah the big thing for me is they're not doing much off screens like during summer league when Duarte and Matherin were starting together like they were using the two of them as movement shooters quite a bit like they were either bringing them off an exit screen or lifting them up from the corner or you know running mover blocker where they're both coming off flares and pins and they are running some pins for Matherin, but a lot of times he's curling those and then attacking them downhill, which, you know, has led to good results, but um, not a lot in that regard. And I wonder if, you know, maybe they were seeing stuff at practice where they're like, oh, guys aren't necessarily making those shots. But I was expecting that we would see a little bit because of the degree of elevation that Matherin can get and what he looked like at Arizona, that we'd be seeing some more of those types of sets, but maybe they're just working things in slowly. But yeah, I mean, they're 28th in three-point attempts per 100 possessions, 17th in free throw attempt rate. So, you know, and a lot of that has to be Matherin at this point in time, given how much he's been getting to the line. 16th in turnover percentage, but fourth in pace. So that aspect has turned a bit of a corner, but uh, the shot distribution has been a little bit surprising given the composition of the roster. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think it's been interesting too, because like, I, I don't know if it's completely on this, but it does feel like, because of the screening and just the general pick and roll quality of what kind of separation is being gotten, it doesn't really feel like there's like, this doesn't contribute to all of it, but it just doesn't really feel like there's a ton of super open shots being created, which I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I wish that there was more numbers available in preseason than what we Mm -hmm. have access to. I mean, I'd like to know a little bit more about where some of their opponent shots are coming from too, but those numbers are not loading um, until regular season starts. But yeah, I mean, if you want to go into the defense, unless you had any more I thoughts. I do have one more thing. Okay. Uh, Chris Duarte has been very fun to watch offensively. The finishing has been really good. Um, he had like that, like a finger roll finish on like a, um, on a, on like a secondary drive yesterday. That was really nice to see. Like, I, I just feel like he's done a kind of continuing off of what we saw um, him doing in the summer. Like, I feel like he's just had some really good tempo and pacing and 
ability to get inside the arc and just be crafty on the inside. Um, so I'm excited to con- continue to watch that. Yeah, I mean, that's I wrote about what he had done with the Dominican Republic's national team and mentioned that a little bit in the write-up that I did because I mean it's like I mean I will bring I'll bring this up here like Tyrese and Duarte and Matherin have barely played together I think they played a little bit in the second quarter of one of the first two games but we haven't seen that that trio out there much at the same time but we have seen all of them doing things that I don't think that you completely always associate with Mm -hmm. them like they're running Tyrese off the regular Iverson play and I feel like Tyrese has been pretty aggressive looking to just catch and get that shot off the screens or as a spot up opportunity or, you know, making a read and using the screen to fade back to his spot, which I think, you know, before the season had started, if you had told me that one of those three players did that, I would not have picked Tyrese. And likewise, like Duarte has been pretty patient, like what I was seeing with the Dominican Republic's team and that as a passer and when he's manipulating secondary pick and rolls, really bobbing and weaving around that and, and making progress in that area. And again, if you had asked me which one of these three players is doing that, I probably wouldn't have picked him, but um, I think Chris by comparison to Matherin probably is getting somewhat, like, I don't want to say a bad rap, but because I think a lot of people are anxious for Matherin to be in the starting lineup because of what he's looked like, that people aren't fully seeing some of the smaller strides that Chris is showing that he's making. Um, not necessarily shooting the ball well, but again, most of the people on the roster aren't shooting the ball well at the current mm-hmm. moment. So yeah, Except I mean, for Goga. I yeah, Goga, Goga two last for two. Night. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I do. I agree with you. We should give a little bit of shine to Chris. I mean, where do you stand on the shotting the starting lineup? Uh, I don't want to call it a controversy, but it has been a talking point. Um, I mean, I don't. I I don't see how Chris cannot start. And I feel like he's kind of the natural guy out if you're starting Matherin. Um, like I feel like that's been the general controversy. If I I haven't been as like active, right? On that I mean, I will I will be honest that I mean I did preview pods. I I assumed they would start Matherin, um, at the two spot next to Tyrese. Mm-hmm. When I started hearing, I don't some of the language coming out of training camp where it kind of sounded like they were having to work with Matherin on making reads. I was like, okay, they might go ahead and, and start Chris since he's been there a year. Um, but I understand it from the perspective of Matherin's going to be a more natural six man score type coming in for you, mm-hmm. and also easing him in and letting him get those types of touches as a rookie coming off the bench. Um, and what he's been doing as a scorer, I think, makes some natural sense there. And also, I just see it more as like he's going to start eventually. Like yeah. if he doesn't start games this year, I will be highly surprised. So I don't really have an issue with the way things are currently. I think eventually there's probably a pretty good chance that Buddy Heald might be traded. And then we're seeing all three of them starting together or unless somebody else really impresses. But I guess while we are still here and because we have both been, you know, pretty avid supporters of O'Shea Brissett. What have you thought about the O'Shea Brissett situation? Uh, it's been weird. Um, like he hasn't played particularly awesome in preseason, but again, no. it's like really small sample size. Um, so I, again, I don't want to be too harsh, but I, I mean, he deserves as much criticism as anybody else does. Um, but yeah, no, it has not been good on his end. No, he um, seemed he seemed out of sorts when he came into the games. And I don't know if that's because he's just so like 
obviously he's going to have to be fighting for minutes. I mean, and that's part of this. Like, it seems pretty clear to me that they're going to be making people compete to stay on the floor. I mean, just like last night, that second unit was struggling and Rick hockey subbed and put all the starters in. Um, they haven't seemed to be having any qualms. And that goes back to him saying they were going to use a 10 man rotation and that they wanted things to be competitive to, you know, playing the guys. I don't know how O'Shea looked at training camp, so it's really yeah. hard for me to pass judgment on it. I will say in the first game, it wasn't so much that I was surprised that Aaron Neesmith was playing in front of him. Obviously, you traded Malcolm Brogdon to Boston. Um, Aaron Neesmith, I do think, might, with the exception of what sometimes TJ McConnell does as a pest, he's probably their best on-ball defender in terms of, you know, really getting up into the ball and getting into guys. And you want to see what he can do at the three. I understand all that. And I'm not even, I mean, obviously we're also both very avid supporters of Terry Taylor. I really think that our veiled threat from the last podcast might be why Terry Taylor's getting all these minutes. It really might be. (laughs) But I mean, Terry naturally does the things in flow game that are going to get the ball to the next side of the floor. So I get why he's getting that nod. And by all accounts, Mm -hmm. he had had a very good summer. That's Chad Buchanan and other people had mentioned that he looked good in summer league, especially the first two games of summer league. But I was surprised in that first game that Kendall Brown was playing ahead of O'Shea after O'Shea had started all those games. And I was very surprised when James Johnson entered the game ahead of O'Shea. That makes two of us. Um, and, and again, like Goga and Daniel Tice weren't playing. Miles was only playing the first half. So they were kind of using James Johnson as a backup center in that game against Charlotte. So probably not playing O'Shea at backup center, though he has played at the five in certain games when they've been really underhanded and are undermanned in the past. But um, to see, and then I'm not completely surprised that O'Shea came in and had a little bit, you know, of some turnover hiccups when he had been on the bench all that time and watched pretty much every other available player go in before he did. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know what the situation was at training camp. Obviously, there's a reason why they haven't been playing him, but I've been mildly surprised. I'll just say that. And and you're correct. Like, he hasn't played great in these three games. So um, there's that. But any other rotation type things that you've noticed or uh, been surprised by? Uh, I don't know if I have anything rotational. Like, to be honest, maybe I'm just being lazy, but I didn't really take notes on anything rotational just because I don't know what to take from preseason. I think, like, just as, like, a side note, I feel like I used to take tons from preseason the last couple of years. And honestly, this year, I've really only watched the Pacers play preseason basketball just because, A, I've been trying to give myself a little bit of a break, and, B, I just kind of, like, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to get like too carried away. Um, the one thing that we we have to highlight that I just realized we had not hit on shout outs. I think you alluded to it, but Tyrese came off of an Iverson and then he went uh, back the same direction off of looks like it was going to be two stagger, uh, a, a set of stagger screens. And then uh, he got his man caught on the screen and flared back out and then took like a wild, like two steps to his right pull up even though he had an open shot, but it, of course it swished because it's, he just has touch like that. But that was a, that was a wildly impressive shot. Yeah. And that's why I, that's one of the plays that I wrote about, because I just think that that shows that there's another way for him to hunt shots that doesn't necessarily require him to be on ball or, or, you know, wrangling with length mm-hmm. and trying to get to the basket. So that's one of my favorite things, just generally speaking about the way that Rick Carlisle coaches offense is that they have so many plays that look the same 
and that's just Tyrese making a read, but they have a lot of wrinkles out of Iverson and other stuff where you're like, oh, I know what's coming. And then you're like, oh, no, I don't. Because there's yeah. just one slight, they'll make one slight change or one slight wrinkle to a lot of what their base plays are. And I think that that becomes hard to guard because you as a team are like, oh, they're doing that same thing again. And then it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no. So that's something that I always appreciate when I'm watching this team play. But defensively, if we want to hop over there. I I mean, um, I don't really want to, but yeah, we need to. Um, Wow, this defense looks bad. Um, That's my astute analysis. Like, um, I will say, I saw that you noted it too, and it was something that immediately stood out to me watching this game this morning. Uh, They started nexting a little bit, um, which for people not aware – Caitlin, you actually will describe it better than I can because I can like think of it in my head, but I don't know how to fully describe it word base. It's kind of like late switching a little bit, right? Like, um, no, not completely. Like a late switch to describe it is I wrote about this in the Isaiah Jackson article. Like a late switch is the guard gets snagged on a screen, maybe the ball is getting penetrated below the free throw line, and the big will communicate switch, and then that guard's going to veer into the roller or or veer back to the popper so it's not that you're switching out on the initial screen you're chasing over the screen and then you're switching if we're talking about nexting that's going to be a pick and roll coverage where the next nearest player to the pick and roll so imagine the player standing at the wing and they're running a, a middle pick and roll or spread pick and roll that player at the wing that would normally be helping at the nail will take the ball and the person who's trailing in pursuit will peel off to the wing so they did that. I only saw them do that once. It was in the fourth quarter. Andrew Nemhard made the read. And that goes back to what I said before, that I think that what they're doing on both ends of the floor is heavily read-based, mm-hmm. that they're letting guys communicate things. Because that was one thing that stood out when Isaiah Jackson was talking. They, he had been asked, like, what's it been like to guard Miles Turner at practice? And he's like, you know, it's been different because he's a guy who's going to pop. So I have to be communicating the peels or I need to be moving my feet to get out there. And when he said that he had to talk about it, it's like, okay, then that means you're responsible for telling that guard, okay, you fought over the screen. I'm taking the ball. You peel back to um, the shooter, or I call it a veer back. A lot of people will call it a veer back or a late switch back to the popper. Um, He used the word peel, but those can be synonymous in this particular situation. But yeah, so that led me to believe that they're, they're leaving somewhat in the hands to the guys out on the floor to be communicating what they do. Not entirely. They clearly have, you know, some rules of what they want to be doing, but the fact that, that Andrew made that read. It was with Terry Taylor at the time. If people look at my Twitter account, they can see the clip, but Terry Taylor was kind of chasing through a double drag and the ball was once it broke through the three point line, Andrew was like, he's not going to get back in front. I'm going to hop over from the nail onto the ball. And then Terry peeled off to the wing. And then as it so happened, Benedict Matherin like dug at the ball for an inexplicable reason. And his guy like faded to the corner and they gave up a wide open corner three, Mm -hmm. but I like seeing him of that wrinkles and it showed up in the first half because they overall in all three of these games, they've been very aggressive at the nail with the nail help. Yeah. And I'm guessing that just has to do with what their overall on ball defense is. They were a little more so last night than they were in the game in New York. Yeah. So like Jalen, you know, guarding at the nail is coming over very early. And that's how Julius Randall was getting some of those catch and shoot threes. Cause it's like, okay, if it's Chris Duarte and it's miles Turner defending it instead of, Terry Taylor 
like what Andrew Nemar did, you can probably trust Chris to when RJ Barrett's snaking the screen to get back in front of that guy, as well as trust Miles to stab and poke at the ball to buy time for Chris to get back in. So that's a situation for Jalen where we talk about feel on offense. We don't talk about it enough on defense that you have to be able to assess the situation if you're going to next in a situation like that. That's based on whether the guy can get back in front. Mm-hmm. So if you're confident he can, then you need to stay home, which, you know, maybe Jalen felt like he had a little bit more rope because sometimes Julius Randle will be very slow and making decisions. Like we talk about 0.5 second players. Sometimes he can be like a five second player. Hmm. And last night I felt like to his credit that he was making pretty quick decisions when he caught the basketball, whether he was going to shoot or he was going to drive. So Jalen defensively though, like beyond just that little wrinkle that I did like seeing that, um, he had some problems with Julius Randle in both games. Like this, the the New York matchup wasn't very kind to him. If we're it being honest, not. aside from him being active on the offensive glass, he didn't shoot the ball very well. Had some trouble attacking the closeouts against their bigs, and then also defensively, like he wasn't weathering the bumps from Randle. Like, and then also was helping off way too far. Like I just referenced in that specific scenario, but like, what did you think of Jalen defensively across these three games? Yeah, I thought he struggled, um, especially on switches. Like, yeah, um, Jalen Brunson was awesome yesterday, especially in that first half. Um, so, and it wasn't just him cooking Jalen, but I mean, like, it was kind of just the microcosm of everyone. Like, I didn't feel like anybody was really going to be able to get stops. I, um, and that's, I mean, that goes for the last three games in entirety. But yeah, no, I think Jalen's switching has been not great. Um, I know he's trying, but it, especially on guards, it just is not there right now for me. And that's without really seeing them play against, not that Jalen, I mean, not that Jalen Brunson isn't a dynamic guard, but like somebody who's super quick, very poppy, like able to get to the rim, like Jalen Brunson's much more put you on his hip and then make things crafty happen with his Villanova post footwork. Um, like, I'm just, I kind of think like, okay, what does this look like playing against the Cavs when they have Darius Garland and and Donovan Mitchell, who are able to, um, you know, get to the paint the way that they do like that. It sounds, uh, well, we know what that looks like. We saw Jalen switch out to Darius Garland on about nine straight possessions. (laughs) That's, that's Um, a good point. Um, Yeah. I mean, I was kind of, I, it's not that you don't want your team to impress an identity on the opponent but there was a certain point in time especially when they were in new york where it's like okay do you have to switch the halliburton jalen smith pick and rolls like does does halliburton have to end up on julius randall in the post yeah does if jalen like smith have to be catch have to be guarding evan fournier or jalen brunson out on the perimeter like i'm not sure that either of those is favorable matchups for the Pacers. In fact, I think that they're probably net negative matchups for the Pacers in those situations. So um, I I wasn't exactly sure. There was a moment in the second game last night where Matherin and Jalen, Matherin looked like he was going to switch. Jalen didn't switch. Then it just becomes like an awkward trap and everybody's having to rotate out of it into Miles's credit, he communicated pretty well where people needed to rotate. But then, you know, after you get everybody scrambled around and Miles has to chase out to the perimeter because you've had this like impromptu trap in the corner, that makes it harder for everybody to get a rebound. And the rebounding has been an issue. Like the opponent offensive rebounding rate, the Pacers are 28th in preseason. Meanwhile, they're also 28th and forcing opponent turnovers. Like it's going to be very hard for you to win the possession war if you're giving up that many second chance opportunities and you're not forcing your opponent 
to into turnovers. So that's also something to consider. I mean, their pace and the transition frequency will help that to get them more possessions. But, you know, we know what happened in games against teams like Toronto and, and uh, Memphis last year that really load up on possessions. So that's something that's also stood out. But, yeah, I think that Jalen's had – that Julius Randle matchup. Cause the thing that stood out a lot is Jalen didn't play in the second half. And, you know, maybe that's some of this. He did take the really hard hit there on the play from Evan Fournier. I don't know mm-hmm. what his injury updates going to be. He didn't play in the second half. They started Terry Taylor, but on the very first possession where Terry Taylor guarded at guarded Julius Randle, he was more physical with Julius Randle on that one defensive possession than Jalen had been at any point in those two games. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like just to hit on the switching, like you mentioned too, I think part of what, Switching defenses inherently, like there's not, they're not bad, but I think what's frustrating is you can, it's all about like the habits and tendencies you're building because, like, okay, if, like, like you mentioned, like if you're just giving up the, the Halliburton on, on Randall switches all the time, what is that really building for you? Like, what, what is that principle wise teaching your defense that's good? Like, what are your help principles going to be behind it? Are you going to work on scramming things out? And like, it just, it makes it kind of messy. I don't know. Like, cause especially like last year, not to get like too nitty gritty, but like the Celtics, the first uh, like three months of the season, they were switching everything and their health principles kind of sucked in the back. And um, like it, I don't know, like granted, I'm not, we're not expecting this defense to be amazing or anything, but it's just, it is fair to question like, okay, well, what is this really doing for us right now? You know? Well, yeah, because I mean, in the Charlotte game, it got heralded quite a bit. And I did Mm -hmm. think there was some standout moments like Aaron Neesmith, you know, really getting at the ball against Book Knight. And they have been pressuring it a lot. Like I said, like last night, there was clearly an intent because it wasn't even just TJ McConnell. They were bringing Buddy Heald and Chris Duarte up to deny passes. So I don't want to completely take away from it. But like, you also have to consider that like, it was Book Knight. Like he's having trouble creating separation with his handle. So like, it was kind of easy to feast on that to a degree. Like Mm -hmm. I just really was underwhelmed by Charlotte's entire performance. And that's why that game was really kind of hard to evaluate because to the Pacers credit, they came out and were playing very hard. I did not feel as though the Charlotte Hornets were playing hard in that game. They were treating it like an exhibition, you know, let's just shake off some rust type of a game. So then it becomes, you know, when there's varying intensity levels, it's like, okay, what do I take from this? And then, you know, that second quarter against the Knicks when they just got absolutely housed. And then the third quarter, when it turned into the OB top and dunk contest, that did not look like a team that spent, you know, the two to one ratio on defense to offense. I'll just put it that way. Like, And some of that, like, it's not me, like, getting on the coaching staff for that, but it goes back to how much of a difference you can tell, like, just them defending Spain pick and rolls when it's Miles versus it's Isaiah Jackson. Like, there's one possession that people can go look at that, my article from the preseason about, where, you know, they get the back screen, Tyrese is guarding the back screener, Chris starts to go with the roller, then is like, nope, I'm going to fight over and go with the ball. Isaiah's just standing there like he has, like, I don't know what he's doing until finally... Like Tyrese pushes him out to the perimeter. So like from my eye, I genuinely could not tell, like, are they dropping Isaiah Jackson? And he was missed the opportunity because nobody communicated the back screen. He didn't hop around it. Were they wanting to switch the guards? Were they wanting to switch everything and have Isaiah jump out to the ball? Like, I don't know. Like versus it's miles. And he's just like, Hey, two guards switch. And he's just automatically around the screen. Like, and again, like, I'm not saying Isaiah Jackson should be on Miles' level in only his second season when he didn't play a lot of minutes last year, but it is stark to tell the difference. I mean, you can hear Miles calling out screening terminology through the broadcast. And like, Miles, I don't even think has been at his own level 
in these games, but like just the communication aspect alone, I think will improve what they're doing because like in the Charlotte game, I think, I think there were possessions where they were trying to play zone. <laughs> I'm not entirely well, sure. Well, That's, that's something I almost want to hit on too. Cause with how hard they're playing at the nails, it almost looks like they're playing a two, three zone at times. Like, yeah. Cause I mean, in Charlotte, they, I think that they were yeah. like the, the one possession. I think that uh, a handful, especially toward the back end when James Johnson was in, I think they were actually attempting to play one, three, one on a couple occasions, but like there was one in the first half where it's like, okay, Chris and Tyrese clearly think they're in two, three, Buddy is chasing his guy and man. And then the guy, the other guy just cuts because Chris is like, well, I'm supposed to be taking the ball. That's what I do in two, three. And it's like, they're running incongruent schemes at the same time. So it's like, okay. And again, like not that this shouldn't be somewhat expected in preseason, obviously you're ironing out, you know, issues but i think that if they're just communicating what they want to be doing more at that Mm. end of the floor um we want to be seeing quite as many breakdowns but um some of the reason why the defense has looked quite you know quote unquote good in terms of the point total too is that you know they're giving up a ton of three-point attempts like i think they're 27th in opponent three-point attempt rate but their opponents have only shot 29 percent from deep so like the knicks shot it okay in that second game but they did not shoot the three ball well at all last night and the hornets were like 9 of 40. So like you're not controlling three point percentage, you're controlling the amount of attempts. Mm-hmm. So like if if opponents shoot a normal level, the defense would have looked different in those two games. So I think that they still have a fairly long way to go on that end of the floor. Um Tyrese in particular, like it's not just me calling him out, but his on-ball defense I haven't really noticed much of a difference about. Um, yeah. he had a lot of trouble staying in front of Jalen Brunson in that first half. So, um, and, and I feel like when I'm watching that, it seems like, especially in the very brief minutes that Chris and Matherin and Duarte played together, that they're putting Chris on the tougher assignment. Mm-hmm. Like they put Chris on LaMelo for some of those minutes. And then like, they're putting Chris on RJ Barrett, which, you know, is tough for him. I think that he did okay in certain spots. RJ played pretty well in these two games for the most part, Um, getting and finishing at the rim. Even when Miles Turner was there, he was still doing pretty well getting and finishing at the rim when other Knicks weren't. But that just goes back to what the situation with this roster is like. And again, in defense of the coaching staff, you're kind of having to, you know, rotate pieces around because it's like they don't have you know a terrific point of attack defender tj mcconnell did better last night but then it's like you know they have basically zero wings they have like two people on this roster that are in between the size of six six and six ten so (laughs) yeah i if i'm trying to think where to go from here because i have a question well all right I'll, i'll just ask a question if you had to make the the best defensive lineup we're not thinking about offense at all best if you have to defend one final possession what lineup are you throwing out there what five players are on the court well the one grouping that was out there for a bit against charlotte i felt was fairly solid so Mm -hmm. miles probably aaron neesmith tj mcconnell who is at the four i think it was terry taylor but and I don't know, probably Chris at this point in time. Yeah. Maybe Matherin just for the size, but Matherin, I mean, this is why I do want to get into his defense a little bit. His screen navigation has left a lot to be desired. Um, yeah. He's being very indecisive about whether he's going to duck under or go over. And then there's just like several possessions where he's just like hugging the screener and being like, oh, well, we're just going to make this a late switch. And it's like, okay, the big doesn't know that you're doing that. Like mm-hmm. the big needs to communicate that, not not the other way around. 
Because um, if you're going to fully switch out, that's not really the methodology that you necessarily want to go about doing it. And then there's just been moments where he's like overhelping or just like completely lost on that end of the floor that I think probably have gone somewhat under the radar because of how impressive he's been offensively. But um, he does bring a little bit more size and physicality than what, what Chris can bring, depending upon what the matchup is. But um, honestly, I would still like to see Miles Turner and Isaiah Jackson play together at the same time so that I can see Isaiah Jackson's like absurd uh, recovery speed and reaction time. Like his hand-eye coordination, like on certain times when he gets deflections is just absolutely like ridiculous. Yeah. Like as much as he needed to be pushed on that Spain pick and roll possession, I mentioned to get like snapped out of his trance, like how quick he is with his hands. And like that, like 23 second spurt against the Hornets where he blocked, he rotated over to block a shot on a cutter. Then they came down the other end of the floor and he, like deflected the ball from Mason Plumley and then used his recovery speed to get back and block Plumley. Like that's just absurdities. And I'd really like to see that happen on the weak side, but I just don't know if we're going to see it. So part of me wants to say that it would be like Isaiah Jackson, Miles, Aaron Neesmith, TJ McConnell, and then probably Chris, but Isaiah still has a lot of principal stuff that he needs to work on. Like, I mean, he's still like on finishing moves. He still like needs a parachute and wants to jump a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, that's in part why, like, I think it's good that he added weight. He clearly needs to, he has a very slender frame, but like that wasn't just going to remedy everything for him on defense. Yeah. I think that's what's so, I don't want to say it's again, not frustrating, but like in, in watching, that's partially why I wish that we could just see miles and Ajax play together because not that it completely simplifies things, but I think if you just do kind of the Robert Williams, like granted, he's not, he's not the same as Robert Williams, but if you do kind of that similar idea of like, okay. We're going to play rel- relatively straight up and let you roam off ball and really try and thrive as a helper. Like I just like in some ways it it feels like it would almost simplify things for him. Um, oh, I mean, I think it's going to protect. I mean, this is why I brought this up so many times, because I think it's going to protect him from foul trouble. Yeah. I and mean, we saw that effect with Jaron Jackson and Robert Williams. And I think that it just leans into what he already naturally wants to do as an event creator. Like, I'm not saying that you still don't develop him as a five at all, but I would have liked to see those minutes at least for as long as Miles is on the roster. It just leads me to think, like I said, that maybe they're just already planning for the scenario where Miles isn't on the roster. And what's best right now for Miles's trade value is to play him with a four who is at least going to be positioned outside the line so that he gets defended by fives. Because otherwise, I, I just don't really see much reason for that. Yeah. Uh, if I speak... It's just like I mean, we don't just trade him. If you if if you're playing him in a way that's just for the value of benefiting his 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 trade value, just just trade him. Like I, I mean, don't. do you not think? I mean, honestly, like let's just have a discussion about that. Do you not think that's what's happening? No, that's definitely what I think that's what's happening. Like that, until he signs an extension, like I don't want to put it in this way. I don't necessarily like terming people this way, but until he's willing to sign an extension. Like he's basically trade bait. I I don't know how else to look at that. Like, I I don't want to write about it. I don't want another Pacer season to be dominated. It's like the third year in a row where it's like, oh, well, we know Victor's not going to be on this roster. Oh, well, you know, half the roster's on the trade block because they didn't get off to the start they wanted to. And now it feels like, oh, well, like, you know, it it just feels very temporary. And I I don't want to speak for Miles. I don't know how he's feeling overall. That's just, just what the sense I get. Like when you're asked at media day, 
you know, about signing an extension or in addition to like potentially staying in Indiana and you say no comment. And when Kevin Pritchard's asked about it and he says no comment, like I'm not expecting that they're going to provide contract details or what those negotiations have been. But in both cases, Kevin Pritchard could have said like, you know, we're going to talk to his agent about that. I'm not going to divulge what those discussions are, but we really value Miles and we want to keep him here long term if we can. And Miles could have been like, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of extension negotiations, but if the dollars and cents work out, I want to be here. Like neither of them did that. So, and then, I mean, Kevin Pritchard even added at the one point, like, you know, he wants to be a defensive monster. He's excited about playing solo five and playing with Tyrese, but he's going to be a free agent. Like if he's going to be a free agent, that doesn't lead me to think that you think that you're signing him to an extension. So if he's not like, that's just how I see the start of this season. It's just, you have to do what you can do to recoup what his value is. And like, I don't really like looking at basketball through that lens, but I just think that's the reality of where things currently are. Yeah. It just feels like a bad way to actually start off a rebuild. You know, like you'd think that you'd want to start it off with like a clean slate and be like, okay, well, we're going to just start ground up from day one, but Nope. I mean, I think it kind of, I think they got boxed in a little bit. No, yeah. What the foot injury was like, if that would have been different, maybe, maybe you move him at the same time you move Malcolm Brogdon or maybe, you know, the Lakers situation is what it is. I I understand why they were like, Hey, yeah, let's just take one pick for taking on Russell Westbrook's contract and also giving up buddy and miles. Like, I don't think that they necessarily had to cut off their nose despite their face. It wasn't like they had to do it, but I do agree with you that it would have been cleaner and simpler to just be like, Hey, Isaiah Jackson and Jalen are our starters. Yes. We went after Deandre and that didn't work out, but we're going to get a look at what these two guys are, what they can do playing at the same time and, you know, move on from there because like, another thing we can talk about, Daniel Tice hasn't played. I know he played in Eurobasket and that they wanted to give him rest opportunity, but, and Germany did go farther, but like Goga's playing now. Like what? What? It, I I'm still just very perplexed by the idea that Miles Goga and Daniel Tice are all three still on this roster. Yeah. And what the long term solution is there, and that they also like not that two way contracts are everything, but like I don't know if you've watched uh, Queen play, who they just signed to the two way contract, or if you have much background with him, but like you know, they have a lot of six foot six guys on this roster and he's like you know hops highlights can make some you know handles that make some nice passes did some of that in summer league but it's like and again not necessarily that a two-way guy needs to get playing time with the regular rotation you're clearly probably just looking at him playing with the mad ants but they just they seem to have something against adding wings to this team mark yeah it just it i it almost feels like it that's their way of like guaranteeing the tank they're like well if we just don't add a wing we just have... I'm just like, I'm really trying to look ahead to two specific lineups, Mark. When they play the Orlando Magic, and if the Magic trot out the Paolo Bancaro at the one, Franz Wagner at the two. Oh, this team against Orlando is going to get destroyed. Like, I'm just trying to understand how they're going to defend that. And then also, like, how are they defending the Toronto Raptors, uh, Precious Achua, Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, Thad, uh, who's the fifth player that plays in that grouping with them? Boucher, I don't know. Like five Probably wing Fred, guys that yeah. yeah that they throw out there at once. No, they play like oh no yeah point no guard yeah the five, five, wings. The five wings. Like um, oh, Otto Porter, which I can't wait to see Otto Porter play with that team when he's healthy. 
but yeah. he'll be out like, there. I, I just don't know what you're doing against that other than you're just like, hey, we got to run flares and pins nonstop. We got to run these big guys through as many off-ball screens as possible and just make threes and we're just going to get crushed on the glass and not be able to defend anybody. Like, I just... Well, can I just say, too, like, not... Like, obviously, getting a top pick in this draft is tremendous. Like, yeah. but it is kind of hilarious that if they end up with one of the top two picks it's not gonna be a wing no but i will say that like can you imagine the wonder it will be to write about a team with tyrese halliburton benedict matherin and victor that would be amazing did you well i okay i wanted to ask you about this did you watch the the g league ignite met met games i attempted to i watched a decent amount of the first one. The second one, I had all types of trouble streaming it. So okay. I was basically just living through what highlights there were on Twitter. What but like that you... three he made when he was falling out of bounds, like yeah. off a handoff. Yeah. Like a seven foot tall man is running to the corner off a handoff. Like imagine you're running. Like, you know how back in the day when J.J. Redick was still playing for the Sixers, they would sometimes like to counter for a top lock. They would like have yeah. Ben Simmons in the corner and J.J. Redick would just run over there and he would just like get a quick handoff and, and he'd be falling. I mean, that was it wasn't to that degree, but like the brain like can't comprehend the possibility of that occurring. With a seven foot tall person. Yeah, um... especially <laughs> if the guard is the person handing it off. Yeah, he's I I think I, I do want to the best way to put it for me. I do think some people are doing too much and I, I always get worried about part of it's just because me being I was a failed prospect. So I always get worried about people like hype and expectations. So the rich I think Richard Jefferson said that he was like he would go number one in a uh, draft with LeBron. And that's just that's a crock of shit. Please don't say that. Um, but I've just, I've legitimately never seen a player like Victor Wembanyama. Like either just that doesn't like, and what he does defensively too, like the way that he can just restructure what, what court dimensions really are. Like, I think that's one of my favorite things in the scouting him the last year and a half. Every time you see guys play against him for the first time, it's like they're relearning how to play half court basketball because just the things that he can do and help and, um, and changing up what your your uh, your margins for error are is like ridiculous. And like you mentioned with the shooting too, like it's it's not just flashes. Like I feel like so often when um, when we're talking about prospects, it's shooting flashes when they're bigs. But like he's legit, legit. Like I mean, it it doesn't just take that game to realize that. Like seven of, of eleven from three. But like he's been taking movement shots. He's capable of doing stuff, popping off screens, ghosting. Like, his footwork's really good. The release point is untouchable. And he's, he's freaking he's... taking Kobe steps. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. That, that he's pull freaking up he dribbling took, into post-ups up and taking a Kobe step. It's insane. Like, and because especially, too, like, it's not just that he has, like, the high release point and can hit shots, but, like, he has a smooth off-the-dribble game. Like, he's a good dribbler for his size. And... I think like there's stuff I want to see in him developing as a passer that'll be interesting, but like just the fact that he already has the command of the ball the way that he does and can pretty much get where he wants to on the court, it's I mean, that's insane. It's actually insane. It's it just kind of makes you laugh when you watch it. It does boggle the mind a bit, but I look forward to the possibility that that might happen. 
I don't know. We'll see how how. I don't know. There's been a lot of debates too about you know tanking, don't tank, and with the flattened odds and whatnot. Like I think that we're still gonna see teams sitting people for extended periods of time, regardless of the flattened odds. And I think we're still gonna see teams trading off veterans uh, before the trade deadline. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um. So I guess. Is there any other major talking points from these three games that we didn't get to or any player that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? I honestly, I think I'm good unless you had anything else you want to add on. I did not. But do you want to discuss my latest popsicle find? I would absolutely love to. So I knew that these were a, a, a thing, but I had never fully tracked them down. And fortunately for me, I happen until to be now, in a, yeah. yeah, until now I happened to track them down at a grocery store. That's only like, you know, eight miles from my house, which was convenient. And I was getting something else. And I looked, I was like, oh, there's those mango with tahine, uh, outshine. And like, if I'm going to be a true influencer, I need to try all the flavors. So I went ahead and put them in the cart. I wasn't entirely convinced that I would like them when I bought them. I was more doing it for science, to be <laughs> honest. And once I got him home, I was like, this doesn't feel like the type of popsicle that you try alone. Like, it felt like I needed to have a, a wider array of palates because, like, longtime listeners of this podcast know, like, I genuinely can't eat spicy food um, for, like, just food sensitivity things. Like, it's not that I dislike it. Like, I I think it's okay. I'd, it's not, like, my top thing. But I was like, you know, I might have a little bit more negative opinion of this than what consensus will be. So I invited four people over to try these popsicles. And I will say that my recommendation is this. If you see these popsicles at your grocery store, you must buy them. You have to, because one of two things is going to happen. You will either love them and they, they will fit what your, your tastes are, which great. Then you good purchase for you, or you will have the liven up any dinner party. They will be experiential no matter what, like I can't really describe to you what that was like. It wasn't even so much that it was like spicy as much as it was sensory overload. Like when I put that in my mouth, I don't know how to describe to you what it feels like to have something that's both spicy and icy in your mouth at once. It's like you don't know what to do with it. It was it was very unsettling. Um it yeah, it was just like sensory overload. I didn't know what to think and I certainly didn't know what to feel. But if people look back like two weeks ago, I asked the other people, they were not allowed. Nobody was allowed to say what they thought of it. They just had to sit there and eat it. I sent everybody the same text message and asked them all to reply to the text message with what their review was. And their their feelings were a lot stronger than mine. And I will say that some of the people there love spicy food. Like, mm-hmm. so that, that wasn't the issue. I had a wide range of palates to try it. Um, one person, I asked them, how would you describe what it tasted like? And their description was, imagine if Satan sneezed on your popsicle, (laughs) that would be close. And it felt pretty similar to that to me, to be honest. So if I'm doing my power rankings, I'm probably going to put this one last. I still don't think there's any bad outshine popsicles. I think that if you like these two flavors, you will probably like it, obviously. But um, it was just it was it was more a sensory thing for me. It was just very strange to have something spicy and cold eating it at once. I don't know. I don't think I could do that. I I I could join you on Twitter for this. I just don't like I'll, I'll have to try it to have like a true 
um, actual fair opinion on it. But my bias, I'm going to shit on everything opinion, uh, is that it's bad. Um, I don't like cold things that are hot, too. Like, it's just it's weird. It's like very odd to me. Um, I don't think it helped either because like just cards on the table. These people came over to my house and ate dinner and the dinner that was made and the things that some of the people brought, like we're not going to pair well with this. Uh, wow, like if, if I had made, I don't know, something else that suited that taste profile better, like I've made chicken noodle soup. <laughs> And then people had brought over this uh, like pumpkin streusel dessert and we had a debate because like two of the people did not want to know what the flavor was before I gave it to them. Like they wanted to go into it completely <laughs> that blind. That seems dangerous. Yes, that's what made it a little bit worse. Like the shock of having that in your mouth when you don't know it's coming. But um, the other people that did want to know, I was like, well, what should we do? Should we try this popsicle first and then have the dessert or eat the dessert and then eat the popsicle? And I ultimately landed on, we need to eat the popsicle first because if we need relief from that, then we can eat the pumpkin streusel. <laughs> but it was like the most basic foods paired with the most extreme popsicle you've ever had in your life. So I don't think that helped. No, I don't think that would help either. And I feel like that's the kind of thing you have to prepare yourself for. Like you yeah. can't just like go into it not knowing it's going to be spicy because like, popsicle when's the last time you even were you even aware that popsicles could be, could spicy? be spicy like now. exactly like so i feel like that's just that would just take me so off guard if i was not prepared for it yeah i think that and and I, the person who loves spicy food the most out of the group didn't want to know so i think that that is why he in particular was caught off guard as much as he was there were six people in total and one person completely removed themselves from the situation and didn't want to participate <laughs> so there's that but um, I was wondering if I was still going to have friends by the end of the night. Um, it was it was experience enjoyed by all, but they were a little bit mad in the immediate aftermath. Um, I don't think any of us finished it. Well, one person might have. I did not finish it. Like it was it was a lot for me. I didn't enjoy the experience. Hmm. I mean, I enjoyed watching everyone eat it. That was fun. So, like I said, buy it either way. Buy it because you'll either love that or you're going to love watching people eat it. So. Yeah, well, I mean, to quote Abbott Elementary, fruit should not be hot is uh, something I'm going to agree with. Uh, I don't think, to me, I, one of my strong rules is you don't need to spice your fruit and you don't need to put sugar on your fruit. I, it bothers me so much when people oh, put sugar on their fruit. Do you do that? I, on some fruits, yeah. Like, oh I'll put, God. I'll sprinkle sugar on a nectarine. It's good. That's fine. Well, you just said you one of your it. rules is that you don't put sugar on fruit. Well, I'll, I'll let you do it. I'm I'm not going to partake. Um, do a lipo like... with fruit rules over here. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It's just, I I don't know. It's hard for me to, like, fruit's already sweet, you know? Like, there are some that aren't, like, super sweet, but for the most part, it's like... Oh, I'll also, put, I'll also put sugar on, on grapefruit for sure. Well, yeah, grapefruit sucks, so I understand. No, that. no, 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 no. Grapefruit is wonderful. I'm going to have to disagree on that one. I think grapefruit. Okay. Have you ever had, I, I don't, I'm not like a big drinker or anything, but I worked at bars for a while. So have you ever had a Paloma before? It's very delightful. It's like very refreshing. It's uh, basically it's tequila, seltzer water, and grapefruit juice. Um, I mean, it sounds like things that I would like. It's very I have not good. had it, but I like grapefruit juice quite a bit and I had to give it up. Well, I didn't have to give it up. There's like, a person in my family with a health issue where you're like, you're not supposed to have grapefruit juice when you have this particular health issue. So in solidarity, I gave it up and said, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have it anymore. 
And I think that that's why grapefruit has like been aggrandized in my mind. It's probably not as good as I'm remembering it to be. Yeah. It's just that I can't have it anymore. Okay. Well, that makes more sense than at least one question but, I've never asked you before. Uh, what is the proper color of outside of a banana peel before you eat a banana? Closer to green, the better. Oh, Jesus Christ. If okay. it starts to be yellow or have a brown spot, it's too sweet and it's not good. Wow. Yeah, no. I don't. Ripe bananas are bad. I think ripe bananas are phenomenal. I can only eat. So it you would eat a spot. banana with brown spots? Oh hell yeah! That's one. No, that's when there's it, to it, it. It's too much. You just said you don't. The fruit's already sweet, and you don't want it to be more sugary. And bananas well, yeah, are see, literally. I, I'm not putting bananas sugar are on literally it. more happening. sugary when they're brown. That's that's good. It's breaking down. That's what's supposed to happen. No. If they have green color on it, we're doing well. And then you're not getting the unappealing strings. Like, the closer it gets to brown, the more unappealing strings that you have to contend with. Yeah, but if it's green, the it's like... The, the only thing that a brown banana is, so is worth for is to make banana bread with. Otherwise, you don't need that. At that point, it's time to get rid of the banana. I don't know about that. I struggle with that one, Caitlin. That's... I, I believe that if there was a poll on Twitter, that the majority of population would agree with me. Well, I'm getting, uh, I'm aware. <laughs> I, I've, <laughs> I've learned my lesson with these things uh, enough to, to stop pulling for the most part. So, okay. I know. do want to say that for like the two people that are still listening to this conversation, you know, maybe one person by now that I do have a plan. If you're up for it, that I wanted to do our next pod as a mailbag pod. Okay. So if people are interested in that and have questions that they want to ask us about the Pacers before the first regular season game, please either put them in the comments at Indy Cornrows or send them to either of us on Twitter. Um, and we'll be happy to answer those. Also, if you just have like general basketball questions, our last mailbag went over pretty well, or just like fun questions that you want us to do at the end, we'll be happy to do that too. So I just wanted to put it out there. Ask us stuff. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. That will be very fun. Well, Caitlin, this was a blast to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.